Hey everybody, welcome to another Canine Mind Freak episode brought to you by Canines on Duty. I am Brian and today we have Howard Young with us. Howard, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I've been watching your, uh, your Facebook page. I've been watching your videos and some of the comments you've made on some of the LEO um, discussion boards. And uh, I reached out to you about a week ago because I'm really impressed with what you have going on over there. And for those of you listening or watching, um, just so you know, if you don't know who Howard Young is, check him out on Facebook. You can uh, go to either Howard Young, do a search for him. Look for the guy with the white beard because that's actually the name of his company, Whitebeard Canine Inc. And um, Howard has 31 years experience working with dogs, specifically 20 or 26 years working with police canine. Um, Howard, can you tell us a little bit about what you guys do over there at Whitebeard Canine? Yes, um, we actually currently contract with a few different agencies, uh, police agencies. So we, we work with a police department locally, and uh, we also, we've got a 26-year history with that, with that organization or that agency, and then also have our local sheriff's office. And we've picked up some other uh, folks along the way. So it's growing, um, not necessarily intentionally. So that's, that's a good thing. So I don't, I don't mind that kind of growth. Absolutely. And you, you, do you deal with people, um, police agencies all over the U.S.? No, currently it's just, just locally. I got gotcha. um, and, and I think that's really our bread and butter because we really become immersed in what they do, and they come to us pretty much solely. Uh, not that they can't go get additional training, but uh, essentially, I am earmarked or designated as their trainer. So I am available 24 hours a day, basically. So uh, if something comes up, they can contact me, and you know, I'm I'm local. And I think that's one of the things that makes it work. Yeah. Well, you build a bond and you build a relationship with them, oh. and that's that's always a good thing, especially when you're talking about business. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you got into training canines, kind of your history a little bit. What, what made you have the desire to get into this? Well, I guess, you know, it's funny, like, like most kids I had, we had dogs growing up, but honestly, they were, they were rather insignificant in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out that maybe they weren't so insignificant as I, as I got older because that was an interest that picked back up. But we had German Shepherds when I was a kid. And, uh, but when I was in college, I started to develop a real interest in Rottweilers for some reason. I just was really intrigued by the breed. So one of the things that I wanted when I got out of college was I wanted a Rottweiler. The reality was I was, a, I was just getting a field. I didn't have money. I couldn't even buy a real Rottweiler. So I ended up buying a mixed breed. He was half Rottweiler, half German Shepherd, of all things. Right. But eventually, I did, I did get my first Rottweiler. And uh, I had learned enough to do obedience training with it. And we had a local uh, group of gentlemen that had Rottweilers. So we had a, a small club. And this gentleman also did some protection training. So we, uh, he actually put me in touch with another gentleman in a neighboring county who worked with police dogs and trained some protection dogs. So I started uh, going there with my female Rottweiler and she actually did pretty good. She was a nice little demo dog. I don't know that she was ever going to protect me for real, but right. she sure looked like she would. Um, <laughs> but I, for me, it was one of those things where I was right place at the right time. His business had kind of had a, a transformation and he'd lost his 
his primary decoy. Mm -hmm. So I was able to kind of step into that role. And I, I would go there uh, two, three times a week, started decoying, started assisting with some of the uh, training of the local police dogs. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing led to another. And I think we, we also got involved in the sport of Schutzen at that time. So I formed a club. It was a DVG club and uh, got very intrigued by all that and worked in that sport for a few years. And then really one thing led to another um, locally, uh, some of the, because I had a number of folks who were coming to get some decoy work throughout the week. And obviously you're in a small town and uh, word would get out and some of the local police officers started coming by and watching. Hmm. And uh, interestingly enough, they started seeing holes, started seeing that we were able to do things with our dogs that they weren't able to do with theirs. Right. Uh, so really one thing led to another. I, the, the local chief at that time was wanting to make some changes in the canine program. So he asked me to evaluate the current canine teams. Um, I really took that seriously. I mean, I, I don't know how serious he thought I was going to be, but uh, I put, up, put together some scenarios, wrote up a proposal. And really my proposal at that time was pretty bold for somebody who had never trained a police dog. Um, essentially I was telling him, I felt like there were two teams that needed to come off the road for some remediation training. And, uh, two weeks later he asked me if I wanted a job. No kidding. I said, um, I've already got a job. What do you have in mind? Uh, so we talked about, um, uh, working around my hours so I could continue to work at that time in the field of uh, mental health. So we structured our training around those those hours. Uh, interestingly enough that we still follow that same schedule today, really, uh, which is twice a week for four hours each session. Uh, guys can, they're, they're mandatory. It's mandatory that they come at least four hours a week, but they can come eight hours. So they can come twice during the week. So some guys will come on Mondays and Wednesdays. Hmm. The cool thing is that they get paid for that. Um, they'll come on the nights that they work. They all work night shift. And then along the way, I picked up the sheriff's office. Um, and there are times that those two groups will train together. There is also, in terms of mutual aid, they both, so if the sheriff's office needs a dog and they don't have one available, they're going to call the city. So those guys can work interchangeably. And the neat thing is now is that they've all been kind of trained in the same philosophy. Yep. So they kind of know what they're getting when they call for that agency, you know, not only do you know who it is, but you know you're going to get uh, somebody that's going to meet your needs. Right. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I really like about you is you have a degree in psychology. Yeah, <laughs> I do. It's, it's from very long ago. I mean, I remember Pavlov. That's one of the biggest things that I'm, I'm really trying to um, focus my effort on within sure. canine mind freaking canines on duty is letting people know that, Hey, look, there's a lot about the mind that we need to be aware of, which is what we're actually going to talk about today. And today we're going to, we're going to talk about what's the things to look out for when selecting a new handler, but also what are the, some of the things to look for? So we're going to give you both the red flags and the green flags. So let's start this off. And 
I think, you know, you and I in the, the very short pre-interview that we have, we talked about some different psychology terms. And I think what I want to do, Howard, if it's okay with you, um, I'm going to run through these terms so that our, our listeners and our viewers can understand what these terms mean. And then I'm just going to let you rip loose with your experiences. And from your professional's perspective, what are some of the red flags to look out for? But as we talk, I want people to first understand these terms and what they actually mean. Is that okay? Sounds great. Okay. So the first term that you and I talked about before was conformity. And unfortunately, conformity is very subconscious. That's the, the natural desire to want to do what everyone else is doing, right? So um, can you brief, can you go ahead and explain why this isn't a good thing? Why you are, any canine handler needs to be aware that conformity is subconscious and being aware is going to be better for you. Can you, you talk about that a little bit for us? Oh, well, I guess it's kind of funny because some of what I look for, because I am, I am, tr I am looking for, I'm put a little spin on that. I am looking for guys to conform to the way I do things. Sure. Versus being, um, and not that I have all the answers, but you know, it's, it's interesting because there, I think that generationally we're looking at, uh, I've had this discussion with, with my youngest handler recently because he's always asking why. And I, and I don't mind being asked questions. That's great. That's how we learn. But I, it's interesting that there are more questions of why. Mm -hmm. right? and, and I'm asking sometimes to just trust the process. Mm -hmm. And then I, I realize I'm deviating from your original question, but in terms of... <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I kind of thought this might happen as well by yeah. venturing down a particular hole. No worries. Um, um, but going back to thinking about conformity though. Um, yeah, I guess I'm, I don't personally experience guys that are going to different training groups. Yeah. It's pretty much so. So really what they learn initially, they're learning from me. Um, now down the road, absolutely. I, encourage them to go to as many different schools as they can get to. Uh, unfortunately, budgets don't always allow for that kind of thing, but I try to make sure that they at least get to some venues throughout the year that uh, sometimes it's really important for me because sometimes mm -hmm. the, the person that they go see may say the exact same thing or, exp or express the same views that I'm expressing, but they do it differently. Sure. And it, and it may actually connect with them. And it's kind of funny and it can be a little frustrating sometimes. It's kind of like they'll come back to me and say, hey, he said thus and so. And say, yeah, and, you know, I guess I've, I've been saying that for a few years <laughs> now, but it's okay that you finally understand it. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure, exactly sure in terms of conformity where, where you're headed with that. Well, uh, let, let me, uh, what I mean is, there, oh, so you pointed out, which I, I, I'm really glad you did that because my mind wasn't thinking that, but you brought up the positive side of conformity. Right. You as a trainer, you're trying to get the people that come to you to conform to the, the methods that you've picked up through all the blood, sweat, and tears over the years, right? Right. But there's a negative side to conformity, mm -hmm. which so I, and I personally feel, and I want to hear your opinion on this, but I feel if a department is looking for a potential new handler, one of the things they need to look for is how easily do they give in to everybody else around them. And the reason yeah. why I bring this up 
is because I, when I ran my kennels, I would train handlers from different states. So then when they went through my academy, they went back home, they engaged in their, their training groups. And what I found, I found that there are times where some of the handlers that I train using all the techniques that are supported through scientific research, we know that it worked because it trained the dog originally. They start training with these people and all of a sudden you see the dog's performance begin to deteriorate and then you find out why. Well, now they're using all these different techniques that the other dogs are used to, but their dog is not. And right. so now it's creating confusion and then you try to coach these people and, and I would point it out and say, hey, listen, I, you didn't go to their trainer. You went to me. So my methods are backed by A, B, C, and D. Here's why I did it. Um, how come you're, and it's still, it was like a year long fight to get yeah. them to change. Have you experienced this at, at all? In your- I, I haven't really experienced it. I can tell you something that I do that I don't typically talk about is that from the get go, I try to create an atmosphere of we are a group. It's not Howard Young says to do this mm-hmm. or Howard does things this way. Sure. Even in my terminology, I try to use, well, we do things like this. So I always try to make sure that everything is very inclusive. Um, and what's really interesting is in, in a very short order or short period of time, guys begin to kind of embrace this, that we're all rowing in the same direction in the same boat. And it's not, it's just, it's more of a feeling of uh, uniformity. Uh, this is our group. Um, so I really tried to grow a culture that is very positive and supportive. Not that guys don't give each other a hard time. They do. Sure. That's just, that's just, that's just relationships. That's right. But it's interesting because I've got two, two groups, one group that I've been, not that my oldest guy has been there for 26 years, but there's this one agency that I've worked with the longest. And that is the one that I feel like that I have grown and developed. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of stepped into this other agency and they're both, both very different. Uh, So throughout my week, like on a Monday, I've got the one group that I've been with for so long. And then on the next day I'll have the, the other group and I haven't had as much time to really develop that culture. Yeah. And, uh, and what's funny is that the guys from the first group sometimes will visit the second group and they'll go, Oh man, this is nothing like, this is nothing like our training. And it's not because what, what's happens is that uh, the other group is very, uh, they're very critical. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll sit back and there's a lot of, there's a lot of ribbing that goes on throughout the week. And sometimes it's, Sometimes it's almost even mean-spirited. So it can change the complexion of how things are going. Um, not that it's bad. I mean, within that group, though, there is some tremendous experience. Now, let me ask you this. Do you see young handlers that don't have as much experience as the more salty guys or gals, mm-hmm. and they see the more salty dogs doing bigger and badder things? Do you see them wanting to push forward? Like, I have to do that. That was so cool. Like, I have to do that. And then yeah, they- Certainly, there's, there's some of that. But, you know, you've trained for a, a good period of time as well. You know that there's, those things have to develop. You can't, you have to build that foundation before you ever get to some of that crazy fun stuff. That's right. And, and that's what everybody wants to do. And, you know, you don't want to squelch that enthusiasm either. Yeah, that's right. 
you have to have some of that. So um, it's interesting because within that group that I feel like is that I feel like I don't have as much influence yet. There are some young guys in there that are just they're chomping at the bit. They're wanting to do all the fun scenario stuff. And yes, so what I'm looking at in a four hour block, how can I do this building blocks that we need and then also temper it with we got to do the fun stuff too. Right. But the fun stuff has to be things that we're actually not always, but we need to invest our time in things that we're actually going to be doing with our dogs. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, water bites are cool. That's fun. Mm -hmm. But in all likelihood, we're probably not going to send a dog into the river because mm -hmm. it puts them at a disadvantage. But I think it has some, some benefits for the dog and the handler. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, and you know, that's, that's, I think, part of conformity a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. the, the younger handlers see the more advanced dogs doing more cool things, and they want to kind of blow by some of those basics. And I really right. like how you put it earlier when you said, we're um, trying to, what, what did you call it? We're trying create to a culture? create a culture. Yes. And so, you know, it's the, it's the age old saying, you got to learn to crawl before you can walk. Right. So I feel like in the handler selection process, if you have somebody more prone to conform to the group, whatever right. that looks like, maybe that might be a red flag. Right. Because you've got to be able to say, hey, you know what, let me step back. I need to trust my trainer. And if he's saying I'm not ready for that, then I need to be okay with that. But I've oh. talked to too many young handlers. They want to bypass all the, the basics. And what they get is they really just get a – very neurotic dog, a dog that doesn't know this or that. And the dog's just not performing as good as somebody who was humble enough to say, I'm just going to listen to my trainer and I'm going to go through these smaller steps and hopes to get to the bigger right. prize. Right. You know? Absolutely. One of the other things that you and I talked about in the pre-interview was like, um, how important is self-esteem in a handler selection process? And what are some of the red flags that an agency should look for, or maybe a handler that has the desire to be canine? It doesn't mean that you, because you have the desire to be a handler, doesn't mean you should be. Exactly. Yeah, well, I think self-esteem obviously is important, not only as it relates to, to canine and canine training, but obviously in terms of how they conduct their, themselves on their job. Um, obviously we want somebody with, you know, a good, positive, good self-esteem, um, somebody that is resilient, thick skinned. Um, uh, I think those things are critical. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed is for me, um, a lot of guys that have been involved in, um, it doesn't have to be competitive, but typically competitive athletics mm -hmm. because they, in, they understand the investment of time. You know, you try to prepare somebody for you're, you're going to be putting in a lot of time and you're not always going to get paid for that. Right. Number one, you better have a passion for what you're doing, but, but more than anything, you have to understand that you're investing in something that, uh, that is going to be phenomenal. If you're willing to put forth the effort yeah. and listen and uh, do, do everything you need to do. Yeah, I, you know, and I've worked with some handlers that really wanted the title 
rather yeah. than going through the hard work, you know, it's cool. You know, if you've been a, a B cop just running patrols and it's almost like um, it's almost like having like SWAT team status because you you then fall into the specialty part of the, the agency. And I think I, I just think that I, I'm not saying that it's a large percentage of, of people that want the handlers. But what I'm saying is I've experienced this before and I'm sure you yeah. have too with Absolutely. 31 years experience. I'm sure you've, you've seen this before at some yeah. point. Certainly, you know, they want the take home car. They want the special yeah. uniform. They want the dog mm -hmm. that rides around with them all day. And the reality is there's just, there's so much more. I mean, yeah, that, well, this, that's right oh. this this goes back to some of the things that you and i learned studying psychology is that you you look at the end result and you're so excited about the end result that you're not considering every single step of the way to get there you yeah. know and it's just this weird phenomenon that we humans do um one of the other things that we talked about as far as possible red flags is uh self-serving bias and for those of you that don't remember what self-serving bias is from my prior um, videos, it's when something good happens, you take all the credit. You know, like the way it was explained in my social psychology class was if you get a good grade on an exam, you're going to say, well, it's because I studied my ass off. If you get a bad grade, then most people go into self-serving bias and say, well, I couldn't understand how the professor asked those questions. He, he didn't ask it the way we studied it instead of just saying, well, I really dropped the ball, I really didn't study that hard. Um, do, do you feel like that's important when an agency is, is selecting their handler? Do you think if, if, if an officer has been an officer for two years at your agency and they have a history of accepting credit when good things happen, but blaming it on other people when bad things happen, is that gonna make for a good handler? Yeah, I, <laughs> it's interesting, well, you know as well as I do that this, uh, canine is just riddled with failures. Yes. There are more failures than there are successes. And if you can't accept graciously that, that you're going to fail, um, you know, we have this conversation sometimes is that guys, you know, their dog goes out, let's say he, he is unsuccessful on a track. Um, they're looking, other people are looking at them for explanations. Mm -hmm. And I always caution guys that don't, don't talk about that. I mean, don't, not, not that you need to be secretive about it, but don't process canine related issues with other officers when they don't have a clue about what you're doing. Yeah. They don't know how difficult this is. And, and to me, um, I was hoping we would get into something like this, but to me, this is kind of canine 101 yeah. in terms of how do other officers perceive you? Mm -hmm. Do they see you as part of the team? Do they feel like they are part of the team? To me, that's critical. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes we have to ask ourselves if we're in that position, what about me would make somebody want me to my help? Why would they call me? You know, if you treat everybody like they're dumbasses, why would they call me? That's right. If I have the, if I always have an excuse, I always have an answer. Why would they call me? Am I, am I a likable person? Yeah. Sometimes it's that simple. Um, and you know, in this business, you can't, you can be proactive, but you are very dependent upon 
other folks in terms of usages. Yep. You have got to have strong relationships with the people that you work with. If you don't, that is a major red flag. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, recently I've had to coach an agency that was having a problem with one of their handlers. Mm -hmm. And I talked to some of the other people within that area, some of the other um, officers, and they said, no, I'm not going to call them because of A, B, C, and D. Right. And they had legitimate reasons for not wanting to call that handler out. And it turns out this handler has been violating every rule that their trainer told them to do. They were screwing up the dog. Um, they were doing everything you shouldn't do. The dog was sleeping in bed with them. Um, the dog is being spoiled at home. So it was reward, reward, reward. What the heck do I need to work for? The dog's work was shoddy. The handler made it sound like they are the best in the area and really they weren't. And then they were frustrated when nobody would call them. Yeah. So it was, it's, uh, that's definitely a difficult situation for an agency to run into, which is why I think the handler selection process needs to be more strict. Sure. You know, I, unfortunately, one of the things that I've been experiencing over the last few years is smaller agencies that don't have big budgets. they'll say, okay, we want a dog who really wants this. And you'll only have one guy that goes through all the research. And so then they just give it to him. Right. And it didn't matter if he actually had the qualities that made up a good handler. You know, have you? No, I, I absolutely have experienced that. And, you know, the, the agency that I have the longest uh, relationship with, we've done things a lot of, lot of different ways. And um, unfortunately, there's not always a lot of candidates that emerge. Right. And to me, sometimes what you have to do is look at the reasons why. So why is it that we don't have a lot of candidates emerge, uh, emerging? So it may be that the perception right now, the current perception of the canine program is not necessarily a good one or not where it needs to be. It could be one or two bad apples. It could yeah. be one bad apple. If you're looking at a unit of four, it could be one individual who simply does not uh, – portray the unit in a positive manner. I'm not saying that they're walking around bashing the unit, right. but guys have got to look at that person and go, I could see myself doing that. That's a job that I'd like to have. I'd like to, I'd like to be successful like that, or I'd like to get involved in those sorts of things. Or, or they can look at it and go, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to mm -hmm. work with that person. Um, so sometimes uh, the numbers of applicants will wax and wane. Um, in contrast, this other agency that I'm working with, they've got guys coming out on their nights off. And some of them even are on the night day. If they worked all day, they're coming out and they're, they're volunteering their time to get in, to get in the bite suit or wow. to, um, which is absolutely phenomenal. Um, yeah. I, I, if I can meld the two groups together, <laughs> I would, would love it, but I can't. So, uh, Positive and negatives on both sides, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and going back to what you were saying earlier about creating a culture, I think that's what's really cool about what you're doing in your neck of the woods is you're creating a culture. So then that's bleeding into the non-canine officers. And like you just said, they're now sure. volunteering their time, even after a, a 10 to 12 hour shift. Um, they're maybe helping out with decoy work, scent work, whatever. And that shows passion for this trade. And right. if you can have your teammates, now you're talking about team cohesion between right. the canine handlers and the non-canine handlers. 
and they're getting along well. And I think that's because of what you created in your area. So my hat's off to you for that because I can tell you, I've seen agencies where the, the sheriff's department hates the, the city department, their canines are all pissed off at each other. So they have separate training groups. There's no cohesion. The county has an issue. They would rather call their guy, get him out of bed, wait exactly. an hour for him to get dressed rather than calling the city guy all because of bad blood. Oh, you're, you hit the nail on the head. That's probably more, probably more common than not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So certainly there's some benefits of uh, working with the two groups. I think that certainly helps with that. But uh, obviously the administration has to, has to agree to get along as well. Right. So, I mean, kudos to them for doing that. But, um, golly, I was, I was thinking about something you, you just talked about. Oh, well I, well, I know what it was. I was talking to one of the, I had some extra time before we got started last week, and one of the, the guys who was volunteering his time was telling me about his experience with one of the, one of the newer canine teams where they'd recently caught a guy. And he was describing the, the whole process, how it went down and what the suspect acted like and how cool it was. And uh, it was a situation where a guy was uh, hiding in a hole in the wall, which was basically where the hot water heater went. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they, they got to see this dog actually perform and, and really do his job fantastically. And uh, he was just listening to this complete novice explain to me what, transpired was just magical it was yeah. it was really cool to hear him talk about you know how the dog engaged him and the guy was trying to fight the dog and the dog wouldn't give up and uh, so it was, it was really cool it was uh so I, those are the kind of guys you want to have around yeah well and because that equals support because now they're showing interest when they can see the importance of having a canine team now that's where you, you spark that interest and that desire to want to help. And man, you, it's true though. You see a dog do their job and you see that intestinal fortitude that a dog can have if they're trained properly. It's very impressive when you see them in action. Absolutely. Yeah. So we talked about some of the red flags to look out for. Um, specifically, uh, just a recap for our listeners um, we talked about conformity, not that it's always a negative because we need that as counselors and trainers and advisors. We need people to conform to the methods that have been proven over the years. Um, but you've got to watch out for those people that want to conform to every social group around them. There, there's no individualism. They, they, they never want to stand up and go against the grain. I'm not saying somebody who's arrogant and going to argue with everybody. I've seen that end of the spectrum too. Um, you want to look out for um, people with low self-esteem that are always, always hesitating on making decisions because uh, you know that's not good for canines. Right. Right? But you got to be able to think on your feet and think quickly. Yeah. Dogs. Go ahead. And I think that that is a major stumbling block for some people. Mm -hmm. is that, you know, training's one thing where there's not a whole lot of pressure. We can try to, to create some artificial pressure through, through scenarios, but the reality is that there are decisions that have to be made in split seconds yep. that some people are just not prepared for. Yep. They just can't make that sound quick decision that is, that needs to be made. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Very good point. Um, we also talked about self-serving bias as being a red flag. 
people that always take credit for the good things, but then shift the blame on the bad. Why is that so bad for the, the dog and the handler? Well, I don't know that you ever, I mean, how can you learn from that experience? If you, if you do no wrong, mm-hmm. um, I mean, like we said earlier, if they're if riddled with mistakes and failures, you're going to make mistakes. You've got to learn from them. Um, I just think that's critical. Well, do you see new handlers with even a small level of self-serving bias, always blaming the dog when things go bad? Oh, absolutely. And oh, that's, yeah. that's the bigger picture here when we talk about self-serving bias. Because if you're always blaming the dog, we know through that scientific research that sometimes it's, it's the mental state of the human. So like if you're working double shifts and you're having problems in your marriage, you're in a bad mood all the time. Typically, we see the dog's performance begin to deteriorate because they're feeding off the handler. So if somebody's always coming down on the dog instead of saying, hey, maybe there's something I could be doing different. Right. You know, which is what you as a trainer needs to point out. And if they're going to refuse to listen to you, then they're not going to solve their problem. They're not going to grow as a team. Sure. Yeah, it can, it's funny. It could be something as simple as, uh, you know, the, the stare that we try to develop or we develop in terms of detection. And then how that stare sometimes, regardless of what your technique is, can be eroded where yep. the dog begins to anticipate the reward or he looks around. and. Uh, it's funny to sometimes watch handlers trying to figure out, well, he's just not doing it the way he used to do it. And then, you know, the bad news is, is that you remember there was a time that he did. What's, what's changed? Mm-hmm. He's the same dog. The problem is, is that your delivery. Yep. He, you, have, you have failed in some capacity, in some, in some way, um, to mark that behavior and pay when you're supposed to pay yep and how he's anticipating or uh, you've become a creature of habit you're always standing in the same spot Mm -hmm. so we need to not we need to make sure that things are are changing and the dog doesn't know when the reward's coming and you mark at the right time Mm -hmm. yeah man i'm really glad you just said that because uh that is a very important thing for handlers and even us trainers to constantly look in the mirror. Yeah. Have I become so subconsciously programmed to do this training scenario that I am just doing the same thing over and over again? And I'm, I may not be aware of it. Sure. And that's why I like to bring up like these definitions, like self-serving bias, or, you know, when we talk about like ego depletion or, um, you know, just how the subconscious mind gets programmed and you get to this autopilot state, and right. we don't realize that, oh, we did change it up. Mm-hmm. But if you got somebody that can't admit that, that's to me a big red flag. So Howard, let's talk about some of the positive things. And this is where I'm just gonna shut up and let you rip loose. What, in your opinion, with your 31 years experience, what are the positive things to look for in a good handler candidate? Well, here's a good non-psychological term. We- we talked about a little bit in our pre-interview. It's called shitbag intuition. (laughs) 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 It's somebody that either has it or they they have it and they they are also able to recognize it. So, you know, I'm looking at, I look at the guys that have been really successful over the years and um, one, they've been proactive, but they've also had good solid relationships 
partners with the people that they work with. Uh, there may be guys that think they're assholes, but they're, but on some level, they have ability to connect with their peers and they have an ability to communicate that they are, um, they're there to serve. So when, when they show up, it's, they're not, they're not giving the guy the, the third degree about why'd you call me? What do you need? So they're really there, um, to provide a service. Yeah. And if you think about it, canine in a lot of ways is providing a service. It's providing a service within your agency to do something that other people can't do. But, but in turn, you need their assistance as well. Uh, probably the most obvious is, is setting up perimeters. If everybody on the squad is out for number one and they're out to catch the bad guy and you've got a canine there, you're just spinning your wheels. You're not gonna, the canine is going to be less effective, if not rendered ineffective, Simply because in a town or even in a, in a county, give a guy a head start and you can't hem them in, they're, they're going to get away time and time again. And really, in a place where there's a, a community that's willing to help somebody that's running from the police is pretty common. Yeah. Um, so it's really about containment and getting people to – so there again, you have to have somebody that is – assertive and confident to make decisions they're not the sergeant you're right they're a peer but they have to be able to give direction to the people that they work with to get a perimeter set up and those guys in turn have to be receptive to taking some direction absolutely so in order to do that obviously you have to have some leadership skills you have to have an air of confidence you have to be able to make decisions and not worry about the fact that you don't have any rank. This is this is about building this team that that catches bad guys. Right. Uh, and you're you're a part of that team. You're an integral part of that team, but you're not. You can't do it alone. Yeah. So again, that's kind of came out of one on one. But th- it's amazing the number of guys that 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 escapes them. That that whole concept escapes them. Um, they see them, I'm, I'm there with the dog. I'm going to take care of business. The reality is you're not going to take care of anything. That's right. And (laughs) what was the non-scientific term you used? Shitbag intuition. (laughs) (laughs) They're one of the guys that's at one of the agencies I work with has got the most experience. I would say he has that in spades. So we've had conversations about, um, and one of the things I always try to be honest with is that I, I am, I'm a civilian trainer. So there are certain things that I feel like that, although I've learned a lot, there are certain things I can't, I can't teach another guy. Mm-hmm. So I really, we've had conversations about with him or I have about how can you pass along what it is you do? He has an uncanny ability to catch people. Hmm. Um, so Obviously, he is, he's not a one-man show. He has the ability to coordinate. He has the respect of his peers to follow his direction. Um, so all those things are coming into play. He boils it all down to heart. He's, he calls it, you know, I have heart, they don't. That's why I'm successful. But, but there's, you know, that's an oversimplification. There's, there's something there, and honestly, I haven't tapped into it yet in terms of what his specific skill set is other than shitbagging intuition. That's what I keep going back to. So 
I mean, at some point, maybe I'll be able to put my finger on it. Maybe he can pass it on to the other guys. But right. he catches an inordinate number of people as compared wow. to his peers. Well, and I would assume he gets along with everybody pretty well within he the does. What's interesting, though, is that he's, he has kind of an abrasive personality at times. Yeah. He's very funny. He's very witty, very quick on his feet. And I think that appeals to a lot of guys as well. Yeah, especially in this prof- this profession, I think that the the guys that are quick witted and you know that can take a joke, but also dish out a lot of uh, a lot of jokes, you know, pretty yeah. pretty well perceived or received. Yeah. You know, and I I think that a good uh, definition is one that I learned in the Marine Corps. So at once you pick up sergeant, you got to go through all your leadership schools and everything. And they really drilled it into us that leadership is the sum of those qualities of intellect. So knowing the job, mm-hmm. human understanding, understanding that other people have their own thoughts and feelings. Your job is to not manipulate them by force. Um, and I'll get to the, the rest of that in a second. Um, so uh, human understanding, oh, moral character mm. is the last one. Having good moral values and, and judgment calls. So leadership is the sum of those qualities of intellect, human understanding, and moral character that allows a person to inspire or to control a group of people successfully. And they always said that, yes, in the military, you're subject to the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of uh, Military Justice. Um, So you can forcibly control someone, but we want you to inspire first. Exactly. And it sounds like that the handler that you're talking about, the reason why he does such a good job, because yes, he can be brash at times, but he can also exercise empathy. He can exercise compassion. He can have humor when it's right time. And that makes everybody want to do a good job for him, like preserving the scene so that he can come in and deploy without contamination or, um, you know, assisting a track by doing a a great, um, uh, setting up those um, boundaries. I'm having a brain fart on the technical term. But I'm sorry. Perimeter. Yeah, perimeter. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. So I think that's really cool. What are some other positive things that you can think of that a, an agency should look for in a, a potential handler? Um, well, I, I would say somebody that is uh, certainly not. Uh, Oh, golly. That's a tough, completely had a brain lock. What about willingness to learn? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, those are the guys that certainly um, stand out to me that are asking for, hey, what's some case law that I need to study? Ah. Um, or now that we have, you know, in my day, early days, social media wasn't a thing, but the amount of information that is available to guys now is absolutely astounding. I say I probably have guys share with me things that they've seen on Facebook videos, whether whether it's an actual deployment or whether it's a training scenario, they'll send me a message and say, hey, what do you think about this? And it gives us an opportunity to talk about those things. But it also tells me that they're constantly looking and they're growing and they're, they're wanting to learn. Or they're wanting to get better at their craft. So those things are critical. I mean, I, I think back, it makes me wonder how we did it. I, I think we kind of, uh, I just stayed here in my own community and did my own thing. And it wasn't until I was able to get out and look at what some other folks were doing that I realized 
couple things. Where areas that maybe we needed to grow, and then also areas that hey, we're we're actually pretty good at this. So um, going to seminars or going to certifications to me have always been kind of fun because it gives the local guys an opportunity to kind of compare themselves with other teams that they might see. Mm-hmm. And typically they would come away with it going, Ooh, we, we've got it pretty good. I mean, we've got, we've got good dogs. We, we get good training. And um, so yeah, I, I venture down a hole. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's okay. I like going down holes. <laughs> Makes for a great podcast. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Here's one. It just hit me. And I wanted to ask you this. This isn't so much about handler selection per se. I think it could have an impact. But what about departments where the community is, I've seen this several times over the last couple of years where the community was saying, hey, we need a canine. Mm. The agency had been burned by poor trainers or poor dog selection in the past. And they say, well, we really don't want to do it. But we, the people have spoken we're going to get this dog. So everybody's happy. And you got, you know, um, civilians giving donations to make the canine program happen. They select the handler and then the handler goes through the training. The handler's heart's in the right place. They're really, really good, solid people. And then that the department themselves are not providing the support because they didn't want to deal with this in the first place. Right. right. That's a big issue too, that I've, I've been seeing in some uh, over the, some, well, the last two or three years, what would you say to a department? Like, what, explain to our listeners if, if maybe we have a chief of police listening that is a little bitter over uh, poor canine programs in the past, maybe even before they, they got the promotion, or maybe a sheriff, and they say, hey, I know we need it, but I don't want to deal with it. Yeah, well, it's, it's an investment that never really, you, you can't stop investing in. I mean, it, it is something that, yes, you're going to invest an inordinate amount of time initially, but if you don't have the infrastructure set up when, when they get home for continued training, and I think one of the things that has been very good for us is that because I am essentially in-house, though I contract, I'm, I'm as much of an in-house person as I could possibly be because I'm, I'm available. Um, one of the, the things about the one agency that I worked with for so long is that for 24 years, I was an employee. I was a part-time employee, but they treated me as such. I had a lot of autonomy. I was involved in the handler selection. I was also involved in the selection of dogs. Um, the, one of the really cool things is that if there wasn't any um, chain of, uh, not chain of custody, um, essentially say chain of command mm-hmm. I, could, I could call the chief just I'd go right to the top and that maybe i remember when he was a slick sleeve now he's he's been the chief for several years so um but we would we would have conversations so i could express our needs um and a lot of those guys because of the long history good number of those supervisors were once canine handlers that i trained so there's an understanding of course, that can also work to your detriment as well, because as things develop and change, they, well, that's not the way we used to do it. Yeah. Um, of course, there is, there is a little bit of that. But um, yeah, just how imperative it is to have that, that infrastructure in place and that ongoing yeah. training. And 
they just have to recognize that you're going to have to continue to invest in that. Whether you invest in hiring a trainer or you invest in that handler and allowing him to do whatever it is he needs to do to get that training. Yeah. Uh, it's really unfortunate. It's not, I know it's not just North Carolina. I know it happens all over, but I've had probably at least three folks within the last year that have contacted me that have actually come here. Some, some have driven two hours just to get here because they don't, they aren't getting what they need. Right. They either went through a school and they came back home to essentially nothing, which is kind of what you were initially describing. Um, I don't know that the administration was ever on board to get a canine. They may not have, they may have been, but what they weren't prepared for was the ongoing training that was going to be needed once that person got back. Yep. Um, and then, you know, another situation where the, the handler, he's, he's actually said, can I pay you out of his own pocket because he's not getting what he wants. And the, the reality is, is that that makes me feel very, very odd. Sure. Um, my thing is that, you know, if you're going to invest your time to come here, uh, we're going to make it work. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll do what I can. Um, but I also have a business to run. Right. Right. And if I'm spending time with somebody that's, you know, that is not paying, I also have paying customers at the same time. So we actually, you know, we'll have to work something out there, but. Right. Um, well, and what's interesting about how our conversation has evolved is we've actually created a third category. So we have the negative flags to look out for a few of them, not all of them, but a few to just kind of get the brain juices flowing of agencies that are looking at uh, bringing on a new canine team, selecting a new handler. We talked about some of the positive things and good leadership um, amongst handlers for team cohesion within the, the, the unit itself. But then also we have the third. And I think that's an interesting dynamic to, to, to talk about. And maybe we're done with the conversation, but there's agencies that have picked appropriately that right. it was the right selection for the handler. But as you brought up, which I, I think was a phenomenal point, you said they were keen to the idea, but they weren't prepared for how the cost of ongoing training, ongoing food bills, vet bills, squad car modification, squad car upkeep. If you have a, a dog that's clawing and, and maybe it's a thick coated shepherd that's shedding everywhere. So now, you know, they're using some of their in-service time to clean the car all the time. And right. I think a lot of agencies jumped into it without really looking at those long, long-term effects that you just brought up. Sometimes as simple as how are we going to compensate our handler? Yeah. Yeah. Whether, whether it's time off or whether it's additional pay. Um, I think, you know, the take-home car is kind of a, an understanding is that that's a necessity, but it's yeah. amazing that some folks haven't thought that far down the line. Right. <clears throat> yeah, that's true. So I think that is some really good advice for any agency that is considering a new handler. Look, make sure you stop, talk to people like Howard, and look at those long-term effects of having a canine team. And then decide, don't promote somebody to the position, send them to training, and then rethink things. That's mm -hmm. never good because that's going to discourage a really good handler. And you, sure. you take a great handler that's got everything they need to, to make a phenomenal handler, you're going to see their attitude begin to deteriorate because they're not getting proper support from the agency. Absolutely. 
So, man, I'm really glad you brought that up. I think that that's something that our, our listeners really need to consider. Um, if, uh, by the way, anybody listening, if you're a handler or even a non-handler and you see some of those negative things that Howard and I have been talking about within your agency, make sure you copy the link to this podcast and have your, your higher-ups take a look at this. Have the brass listen to this and, and maybe that'll... Um, well, I think negativity as a whole is a cancer. It, it yeah, can absolutely. Yep. Well, and you know as well as I do, a, a negative handler is going to have a negative impact on the dog, and then the dog's going to have adverse behavioral issues. Yeah. I don't know if you heard this interview this morning. Uh, Tank Mosley was talking to Michael Gooseby. And, I didn't uh, catch that, no. Um, if you get an opportunity to go back, it, it's, it's very good. He's, he's full of wisdom, um, and it's through his years of experience, and he's also very good at um, – conveying his messages. So one of the things that stuck out to me today was um, talking about expecting people to do special things um, and not treating them specially. You know, you have to provide, you have to provide for those folks. Um, Don't expect people to do special things if you're not treating them specially. That's right. It's a pretty simple thing. Um, One of the things that uh, the chief here years ago when I when I started, he was very cognizant of the fact that he didn't want to develop uh, a special, didn't want canine to be a specialty, which is interesting uh, because it is it is guys are different, but because they have they have a very different responsibility, and that responsibility doesn't end when they go home; it, it continues, right. and that's the that's another part of canine is that you know you're not if you're expecting to get money for every minute you spend with that dog it's not going to happen Again, right. you, have to, you have to adopt the standpoint that i am investing my time and this is the job and this is what i signed on to do and i'm either going to embrace it or i'm in the wrong you know i'm in the wrong position right so what's been interesting though is is to watch to this day that philosophy is still kind of in place and there are times that i've i found that i've really tried to advocate for them because they they do have different responsibilities um so what i mean by that is that on their squad they're answering calls pretty much like everybody else there is no preferential treatment uh, but what he did not want to create was this uh atmosphere of canine is special they get they get special treatment um there are times that i feel like yeah, I kind of wish they did get some special treatment. Um, and I, I'm sure they feel that as well. But uh, for the most part, it's worked out pretty well. I mean, there yeah. is what has not developed, though, is an animosity toward canine. But maybe on the flip side is that it's also guys aren't clamoring for that position either. Right. If you were treated differently and, and maybe more specially, uh, they would be clamoring for that position. Yeah. Well, and I think it takes balance too, because I think you could make it so special that it becomes intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. setting higher standards for your people. Sure. And and with these small agencies, reality is, is that if you're interested in canine, you probably don't have to wait very long. You know, you might have to wait two, three years at most because the turnover is significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opportunities are going to present themselves. Yeah. Yeah, Versus, sure. you know, a larger agency that has, you know, 
hundreds of applicants. I mean, you're, and guys stay in forever. I think probably the longest period of time that I've had a handler stay in was 10 years. Um, and to me, that was, that's, that was a long period of time. Um, for a long time, I was having guys that would stay about three years. And to me, that's, that's not good at all because essentially you're entering your third year. You're finally coming into your own. Mm -hmm. You need to put all the pieces together. uh, Not that guys don't experience success those first few years, but really by the time you're in going into your third year, you got this thing pretty figured out. Yep. Well, and that's one of the things that I always coach my guys. I said, you know, just because you graduated the Academy, don't think that, you're going to have this down. It's going to take anywhere from one to three years for you to really master this dog. And the reason why is there's so many variables, right? You don't know, you can't see the dog's thoughts. Right. So that means if something happens and the dog reacts during a deployment, you may not know why the dog reacted that way. Sure. And so now your job is to figure out those variables and that just takes time. Yeah. Well, the one thing that, you know, when you're in training, you can kind of control your environment. Yeah. When you're out on the road, you can't control that. You yep. can't control your environment. Uh, so, you know, we've, it's funny because we've had guys that really, really like training. They like training, but they don't always produce on the road. So some of those reasons, I think all the reasons that we listed could, could play a factor. Maybe it's poor relationships with their peers. Maybe it's, not being proactive, maybe uh, an inability to communicate what they need others to do, mm-hmm. a total lack of respect, perhaps. Um, but yet they, they love training because training is, you know, when I really look at it, it's, it's because training's easy. It's predictable. Yep. Even though, even if we throw scenarios at them, it's pretty, it's pretty forgiving. You know, if you uh-huh. screw up, you dust yourself off and you move on. Also you have, I'm giving accolades when people do things correctly or properly. Um, yep. That's just the way I was taught. I try to provide positive reinforcement as well. Yep. Um, and, I, and I typically, I think I'm fair. Um, so uh, I don't know. That is a dynamic that occurs. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's uh, something that anybody who is interested in being a handler, that's something that you need to consider that, the long term is better than the short term. Because like you said, at around the two to three year mark, you're just finally learning everything you need to know about the dog. Mm-hmm. And even some things are, are poss- maybe impossible to necessarily fix. And let me give you a quick example. I had an a officer call me about six months ago. And he said, when I present a car on a deployment, he sits. Now, he used to be a phenomenal searcher, right? Right. And now I say, gift, and he just sits down and looks up at me. And I said, well, there's variables. Maybe you corrected the dog too harsh if he was screwing around on an actual deployment, and now the dog's associated the real-life deployment with this. You would really need to test this. And he calls me back later, and he says, uh, so I went to um, dispatch, He's never met this dispatch because I told him you have to reenact a real life deployment and then pay attention to what's going on. And and let's see if we can't find some variables. Mm -hmm. He said, well, he never met this lady, did not know her car. I pull her over. 
We get out. I said, Sukarau's gift. And he searched the car great. But then the next night, he had a deployment on a, a person that he didn't know. And the dog did what he called me about originally, sat by his side. And I said, oh, okay, I think I know what's going on. It's you. Yeah. Think about that. You're going up to a suspect. You have no idea who they are. You don't know if they have weapons. You don't know if they have narcotics. You don't know if they're working for the cartel. There's so many different negative variables that chances are you're on red alert. And your dog is paying attention to that. Maybe that freaked the dog out. But this lady, you think you changed the variable because the dog doesn't know them, but you knew them. So now you're still relaxed. So either you're going to have to bring that calmness into a real life deployment, which means you better have backup. So you could be a little bit more nonchalant and almost trick the dog's brain, or you need to bring that same alertness to the people that you know Mm -hmm. and see what happens. And it was very difficult. And I I don't even know that he never called me back. Last he called me was um, he had said that he's seeing improvement Mm -hmm. by trying to create his behaviors. Like when he knows the person he's pulling over for training, um, he'll try to act more nervous as mm-hmm. if he would if rolling up on a right. unsuspecting person. But I, I you know, I kind of like to hear your opinion on that and, and, or at least just validify that. Yeah, those are some issues. We may not have a fix for certain things because you're talking about human being and there's so many variables with what is happening subconsciously. Sure. I mean, I think there's some, you know, there's certain things uh, that handlers at some point, maybe they realize they have to live with. That, yeah. you know, that, that contextually, you know, this is really strange, but there may be a dog that he's really good at the two ball game. So you, you throw the ball and he brings it back, you produce the other ball, he spits it out. And in that context, he really has the out down pat. In fact, you know, you play it right, the dog drops it, the ball rolls to your foot, you don't even have to move, you pick <laughs> it up. Throw it. It's a nice, easy game. But you go over here and you do a detection scenario where the dog is hunting and he's exerting a different kind of energy. And he gets his reward and you go to get it from him and he goes, uh-uh, it's mine. I work for it. I'm keeping it. Different context, same principle, out is out. But because the context changed, there is this situation where the dog doesn't want to out it. So, you know, we, we have some dogs that, one in particular that I'm thinking of, that he still is re- rather stubborn about giving up that toy. Yeah, um, we change the context. He doesn't have an issue, but when you you create a hunting scenario of some kind, he's less reluctant. So it's one of those things that I'd say we're probably year three, and and I, I will say that I don't think the handler has been as diligent as perhaps maybe I would have been if he was my dog. So at some point, you as a handler, you have to realize I'm either gonna take the time and invest in this process to possibly fix it or I'm going to live with it. Yep. Um, But in terms of your scenario, I think you're probably spot on. There is something that the handler is doing that is somehow different and is, you know, you would hope that the dog would maybe be a little bit more resilient uh, in terms of his ability to go from one type of, that's pretty sensitive. Right. Uh, for a dog to be doing that. So I'm really looking uh, for most of the dogs that I work with, I'm looking for some, some real solid resiliency because uh, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to, we're going to screw things up. Yep. 
Yeah, and you know, if I remember right, now that uh, after you you kind of shared your your views on on that, I think I remember this handler saying that during a deployment, his dog wasn't he was screwing around, and he gave him a really hard correction. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is if you look at how training is conducted, it kind of lets you know what the handler's habit is going to be. And right. what's with a dog screwing around, a lot of people teach correct and foosome. Right. You know, hey, you're screwing around. Let me pull you out of that environment and sit you by my side. Yeah. Real dangerous in detection for sure. Yeah. And I, that's actually what was happening with the dog. And he just happened to do it during a deployment. And the dog put all that together. The whole point is, I mean, we're not, we're not really going to get into the canine behavior versus the, the mm-hmm. handler behavior. Um, but the whole point, even bringing this up, it's to educate people that want to be a handler that there is a lot of variables and that's why you have to be willing to sometimes shut your mouth and listen to your trainer or the people that have more experience that are already handlers within your agency. You know, um, because this can be very complex, man. I've been at this game for about 30 years myself. I've been um, studying canine psychology for about 15 officially at a university for about the last five years mm-hmm. and i still shake my head and say i don't know yeah so then i call people like you and i run it by you hey what do you think this is what i'm thinking you know mm-hmm. or i reach out to my network of people that i trust that that produces good quality dogs yeah and i ask them because the truth is i don't know at all yeah i yeah. never will sure networking is really important mm-hmm. really important yeah so okay um, Howard, what I'd like to do is um, I would like to, I don't know if you'd be willing to do another interview with me, but I would love to pick your brain on another video blog or, and podcast on how to properly select dogs because you started touching on it, but we're at a little over an hour now. Um, so I think I want to cut this short, but I would love to do another one about canine selection. Would, would that be okay with you if we did that yeah. maybe in the next month? Excellent. Excellent. So, okay. So for all you listeners, check this out. Again, just to recap, we talked about the negative flags. We talked about the positive flags. And we also talked about um, the higher ups within the agency providing proper support to the canine teams, which is going to help the good handlers who have been selected keep doing a good job. Because over time, without having support from your agency, you're going to end up thinking very negatively and it's going to impact your dog and your training and your deployments. So keep that in mind. Howard, I can't thank you enough for doing this interview. Uh, You brought a lot of phenomenal insight to this conversation. And I hope that you've inspired some of our listeners to uh, maybe educate people that either want to be handlers, people that are going through the selection process currently, or even advising their, like, you know, their sheriff or their chiefs, because Sometimes, you know as well as I do, Howard, people put their best foot forward in front of the powers that be, and they appear to be right for the job, but really they're not. And the team can report that. But there's, I think maybe, hopefully we've inspired people to have the courage to go to their higher ups and tell them, I don't think, I know he's running, but he's not a team player. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be important for people to start doing. You know, not that I want to create a bunch of snitches or anything. <laughs> snitches get stitches, right? That's what they say. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, Howard, do you have anything else that uh, you wanted to share with our audience? No, I mean, it's, um, if you want to reach out, I would be glad to, to talk with anybody. But uh, I can be reached on Facebook with under Howard Young, but also uh, Whitebeard Canine. I have a page for that. Oh, good. Um, on Instagram, I go by Canine TRNR, Canine Trainer. And uh, I try to get on those things at least several times a day. Okay. My email is hjyk91 at gmail.com. Okay. And what I'm going to do for our listeners and our viewers, I'm going to put all these um, ways to contact you in the description of the podcast and the video blog, because I'm actually going to do both for, the, for this one and for the one I did last time too. So yeah, I'll have all this out there for you. So by all means, for anybody that wants to pick Howard's brain, uh, this man has a lot of years experience. I've talked to a few people that know you and they all said the same thing. Oh, I love Howard. He's so humble. Like he's very good at what he does, but he's not arrogant about it. And he'll talk to anybody. And that's the kind of people that I, I want to interview. The, the, you're the kind of people that I want to pick your brain and I want to help educate maybe some of the young handlers, um, even some of the old handlers. You know, um, I think there's some people that are just stuck in some of the old ways as you brought up in our conversation and, and, you know, times are changing. We're learning more about dog cognition and uh, olfactory and all this. You got Cameron Ford out there doing a phenomenal job working with the university. And things are changing. Things are being updated. And, uh, man, Howard, really, thank you. You've brought some really good stuff to the table today. I really appreciate you, my friend. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So, okay. So anybody who wants to reach out to Howard, look at the description. I will post the link to his Instagram. I'll put his email, uh, Gmail up there, but also his, uh, both his Facebook pages. Feel free to reach out, pick his brain. He will not lead you astray. I put my stamp of approval on Mr. Young here. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So till next time, everybody stay safe, watch your six and as always, Semper Fi.